It is good to see you. Have you all got an outline? Because you're going to need it this morning. This message is for you, and it's for me as well. I want to start off by showing you something which shocked me when I first saw it. In May of 2010, the tropical cyclone Agatha blew in to Guatemala City. And what it did is it opened a sinkhole. You know what a sinkhole is, right? 80 meters wide and 100 meters deep. It swallowed a three-story building. It swallowed a security guard and a bunch of other stuff, including lampposts. You get to the close, too close to the edge of that, and you can imagine what happened there, which wouldn't be very good. There we go. So the ground, the, how did that happen? How is that even possible? The reason why that happened is the ground underneath it was not stable. And what happened was, literally, the floods came in, and it collapsed with a great crash, and mightily was the crash. You can read about that. Now that, friends, is a metaphor in life. When we're too busy, and by the way, unfortunately, our inner lives inside can often resemble that danger zone like that, of a sinkhole. Because often you and I will find ourselves very, very busy in life. Too busy. Too busy to even think about God. Interestingly, after I played squash for about two hours yesterday, the guy that I was playing with, after he'd finished catching his breath, we spent the next hour, just about, he actually wanted to know about God. And that's a good thing. But sometimes people are too busy to want to know about God. Or for Christians who've been around a while, they're too busy to spend time with God. When we ref- and it's, we can also refuse, if we're too busy, to deal with hurts and past hurts or habitual sins. Or we can also, when we're too busy, forget to deal with the secret flaws which all of us have or addictions. If we do that, we're in danger of setting ourselves up for a collapse. Look okay on the surface, but the floods come and the storms come in and you're in a hole. Now the surface of our life may again, remember this, five minutes before that happened, everything looked stable, everything looked secure, but underneath the exterior, sometimes we're sitting on a very fragile base. The storms of life, or even just a normal process of living, can suddenly expose our hidden vulnerabilities, and it causes something that looks like a spiritual sinkhole. So today I want to talk to you about both distractions and the disciplines for our inner life. And I want you to listen with all of your heart because there is something in this message from God's Word today for every single one of us, including me. So, number one, I want to head off with this. I want to talk about the distractions to spiritual growth. Distractions. You get on your kids because they're distracted. Right? Yeah? need to focus. Now, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says this, a distraction is something that draws or, distract or directs your attention to a different object or in a different direction at the time that you're supposed to be concentrating on something else. Now, we've seen the tragic consequences of distractions. This is what it looks like. I've seen relationships when they're supposed to be married and they're very distant, they're unengaged. It's like two people living under one roof, but there's no connection. 
they've neglected the disciplines of building a strong marriage. Because good marriages don't just happen, you have to work at it. And sometimes we've seen this also with kids who have hyper-short attention spans. They're distracted. Zing, 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 zing. They're like pinballs. And tragically, there were deaths, many deaths caused by distractions. Now, Miles Hughes in this next shot here, how many of you seen this? Anybody seen this? Go see your hands. <clears throat> how many of you have done this? Me too. Not good. So the National Safety Council reports that cell phone deaths, while deaths, deaths while using driving in the U.S. led to 1.6 million crashes a year involved in that. Nearly 390,000 injuries occurred each year from accidents caused by texting while driving. Distractions. One out of every four car accidents in the U.S. is caused by texting and driving, in other words. So, you know what? Don't do it. Stop it. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> okay. Distractions are deadly. Not just on the road, but in life as well. Now, there are two specific distractions I want to talk to you today about. Just two. Two specific ones. They'll get in their way of growing, especially as a Christian. Number one. The first distraction is a distraction of frenzy. Frenzy. Ridiculous busyness. Hypertensive living. Did you know that busyness can be an addictive drug? Hustling it. That's why they call them workaholics. Not alcoholics. Workaholics. And actually, James Houston, the president emeritus of the spiritual theology at Regent College, this is in Vancouver. This is what he said on Twitter not long ago. Busyness is a narcotic of the soul. A narcotic. Because it gives me a sense of self-importance. But it's a false sense of self-fulfillment. False source. He also goes on to suggest that busyness for many people acts to repress inner fears and personal anxieties, because he's saying there, we get busy often because we can't deal with the, what's really true in our own life. So we cover it all up by getting too busy, and going from one thing to the next, and we don't have to think about what's really important. Now this is interesting. I don't read this paper very much, caveat. But I did on this case, because this article was factually correct. New York Times article, really good article, called The Busy Trap describes a frenzy of many souls. And it may sound like somebody you know, and it may remind yourself. I'm going to read a little bit of this. If you live in the 21st century, you probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. Anybody had that? Yeah, yeah. It becomes a default response. When you say, uh, when you, so, so you say somebody says, how are you doing? You go, oh, they'll respond busy. Actually, so busy, I'm crazy busy. Now, it's a pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response when people say that to us is a kind of congratulations of self. Well, that's a good problem to have, mate. Or bit on the opposite. Now, notice it isn't usually people pulling back-to-back -back shifts in the intensive care or A&E or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who are telling you how busy they are. Notice that. No, it's what those people, uh, those people are, is not busy, but those people are tired 
and they are exhausted. They are dead tired. They are dead on their feet. It's almost always people who lament busyness, you observe it's mostly self-imposed. It goes on to say the last bit, which I thought was worth quoting. Work and obligations, they've taken on voluntary classes and activities. They've encouraged their kids to participate in their busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety. And they're addicted to busyness. And they dread that they may have to face if they weren't so busy. You can read that yourself. It's a very interesting article. So, if life is that frenzied, it doesn't leave any room for spiritual, serious spiritual growth. When we won't provide a place for conversation with the indwelling Christ, all that's left is a frenzied hustle, a frenzied hustle discipleship. We discipled after the pattern of busyness. That's the first distraction. Now we're going to look at what to do with some of these issues shortly, in a moment. The second distraction, which can catch every single one of us off guard, everyone in this room, everyone, and maybe it's caught you, and it's the distraction of familiarity. If you grew up in the Christian faith, I didn't. But familiarity can be very hazardous to our own spiritual growth and our own spiritual health. And we become like the people that Paul wrote to Timothy about. You know what he said about these people? He said that they have the appearance of godliness. There it is, the appearance. They look godly, just like that house. Look, and that, that three-story building looked fine five minutes beforehand. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. There's no reality there. The appearance of being religious. What would that look like? Well, it includes going to church meetings. It involves going to small group meetings. Nothing wrong with those, but if you get familiarity, uh, familiar with them, it, there can be a problem. Knowing the doctrines, using Christian cliches, and following the Christian traditions, that can be a problem. Now, those practices make a person look good, the appearance. But if the inner attitudes of deep belief, love, and worship aren't happening, the outer appearances are meaningless. Meaningless. And Jesus gets after that. Paul warns us not to be deceived by people who only appear to be Christians. But if you lived in their home for a while and you were an ant on the wall and you watched what happened, you'd probably be persuaded that it wasn't that serious. It was an outward appearance. So while it may be difficult to distinguish them from true Christians at first, their daily behavior will give them away. What they do, not what they say. Their characteristics are described, actually, a little further back. In 324, they're unmistakable. And then the Apostle John actually wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation. Listen to how he describes just a couple of those, just a couple of them. First, the church of Sardis. Revelation 3.1, it says here, these things he says to he says, excuse me, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, outward appearance, and that you have a name, appearance, and that you're alive. You think you're alive, 
But actually, Jesus says, you're dead. Church of Laodicea. Second one. A few verses down in verse 17. Revelation 3. For you say, you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. I lack for nothing. Not realizing. In other words, you don't have a clue. But actually, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We become so familiar with the outward tokens of our faith that we are no longer drawn inward to God and to his mission. And therefore, for the first quarter of this year, we are going to focus on 40 days of prayer. Refresh my heart, O God. Now, some believers falsely assume that numerous material possessions are a sign of God's spiritual blessing. Not true. That's a discussion for another day. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. And the church there was filthy rich. But what the Laodiceans could see, could buy, could possess, could acquire, had become more valuable to them than what is unseen and eternal. And they've become, they've given their hearts to other things. Wealth and luxury and ease usually make people feel confident, self-secure. self-satisfied, familiar and complacent. But no matter how much you possess or how many dollars you have or make, you have nothing. If you do not have a vital, that means alive relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, is your level of wealth affecting your spiritual desire? Is your desire to acquire affecting your spiritual growth? Because there's only so much energy you have. And there's only so many hours, 168 hours each of us have. And we get to choose how we're going to spend those hours. So instead of centering your life primarily on comfort and luxury, if you took your calendar, you gauge that. The Bible says to find your true riches in Jesus Christ. Lest we end up like Samson, who did not even know that his strength was gone until he needed it. And then it wasn't. The danger is we become so familiar with Christianity, and we think we've got this church thing worked out in Jesus, that we become lukewarm in our devotion to God. And the fire that we sung about this morning is gone. It's nearly out. There's maybe an ember there. And you remember, oh, you remember. But that is not the reality today. Burn in me, Lord. Refresh my heart. And therefore, there's an implication to this. Our Christianity becomes barely discernible from that of the world. In reality... It doesn't make any difference to the way that we live. We just live like our next door neighbor, apart from we may go to church on Sunday. 
so at the beginning of this new year, how do we deal and put those distractions to death? How do we deal to those? Before I go on, though, I want to remind you of the importance of the broad-term discipline in the Christian life. A disciple is a disciplined one, by the way. So let's talk about briefly the disciplines of spiritual growth. Now, I know that's not a favorite word today in this modern society, particularly since some of you have already broken the resolutions you made 24 days ago already, like the gym or the food or whatever it may be. Huh? But the truth is that no one really succeeds in any relationship or any task without two things, desire and discipline. You need those two. Desire and discipline. We need both. So the good news is, is that God has not left us alone. He didn't say, well, I'm out of here, guys. I'm going back to heaven where things are cruisy. I'm going to sit down and pray for you. But here's the deal. I'll leave you alone. I'll just give you a Bible. No, he, he left us with his spirit inside of us. He's given believers a spirit that empower us to become increasingly more disciplined about the things that really matter. Really matter. Growing in our relationship with Jesus, sharing our faith, praying faithfully, participating in his mission, and fulfilling his purpose for our lives. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you to do two things. Now just to will, that's a desire, and to act, that's the action, according to his purpose, his good purpose. So he gives us the desire, which is the will, and the power to do or action what pleases him. So notice that there's two things going on there. There's divine enablement and human responsibility. Both are involved in getting God's work done. In Philippians 1, Paul tells us to work out our salvation by putting it into putting putting into practice in our daily living what God has worked in us by his spirit. So what God has worked in us by his spirit, we need to put into practice daily. We exhorted here in Philippians 1.27. Only, this means, hold on, hold on. It means, if you don't get anything else done, if you get nothing else done tomorrow, let your life, let your manner of life, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some people today are dying for that. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. This is not an individualistic pursuit. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. His cause. Nothing else ultimately matters. So if you don't get anything else done, be disciplined. In other words, live, in a li live your life in a way that's worthy of the gospel. That's what he's saying there. Be resolute and determined to advance the cause of Christ tomorrow, today, this week, in your small group, in your work. Now, being a citizen of three countries, Britain, New Zealand, and the US, I, I kind of like this quote of Harry Truman here. 
He says, in the reading of lives of great men, I found that the first victory they all won was the victory over themselves. Self-discipline with all of them came first. And guess what one of the fruits of the Spirit is? Self-control. Harry Truman. And then H. Jackson Brown. Talent, I love this one. This, this got my mind thinking. Talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. <laughs> There's plenty of movement, but you never know whether it's going to be forward, backwards, or sideways. <laughs> I met people like that, multi-talented, but very little discipline. Now, the Word of God tells us in many places that discipline is to be a part of the Christian life. Paul wrote to young Timothy, and he said this. Very germane for today. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. By the way, that will include ridiculous political conspiracy theories. Stay grounded. Stay grounded. Rather, he says, so forget all that, Tut. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Spend that time and energy and desire to train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul is saying to Timothy here, just like you need to go to the gym or play squash or walk and stay physically fit, you need a spiritual gym to stay healthy and in shape. He goes on to say, next verse, for while bodily training is of some value, our bodies wear out. Anyone want to give a testimony of that? <laughs> We're going to look after these ones. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. So don't switch the price tags. Don't spend eight hours at the gym and eight minutes in the scriptures. Somebody swizzle the price tags there. It holds promise for the prison life and also for the life to come. So spiritual exercise, he's saying here, is way more important. It has way longer shelf life. Residual value. Faith must be more than a belief in certain facts, and it must result in action, growth, and Christian character. It must result in the practice of moral and spiritual disciplines, or it will die away. What do you mean? You may want to put out the side there, then put in your outline, James 2, 14 through 17. That tells what happens when you don't act on your faith. It becomes dead. So how, after we've laid that groundwork, do we finish this part up? How do you get through the distraction of frenzy? What do you do? What can you do this week? What disciplines do we begin with to get through the distractions if we're living with out-of-control frenzy? Well, the, dis the discipline for frenzy is prayer and solitude. So where we might start? Prayer and solitude. Let's take Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still. Oh, there's a problem right there. There's a problem right there. Be still. And know that I am God. If I want to be still, the best way for me to do that is sometimes, if I really want to be still, is when I've gone into the bush for three days, and day number three, I'm dead still there. All the distractions are gone. We can't all do that. I'm going to talk about the practical reality. 
Friends, in day-to-day life, we have to carve out some space in your frenzy where it's just you and God. Listen to these other translations of the same verse. They're up on the screen, not in your outline. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Just stop your work for a minute and know that I am God. Call your jets, my mother would say. (laughs) Here's the Amplified. Let be, let it be, and be still. And know and recognize and understand that I am God. And then lastly, the message. I can't wipe this. This is a paraphrase completely. (laughs) Step out of the traffic. (laughs) Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics and above everything. Now, what's the challenge in those verses? The challenge in those verses is we are never still. We're always on the go. We get up in the morning, we hustle all the way through the day, says me, who was up till two o'clock this morning, uh, until we put our tired heads on the pillow at night, only to get up the next day and do it again. Right? We don't have any solitude in our lives. And it's not, by the way, just about being quiet. All those psychologists, secular psychologists, have seen the value in just decompressing. It's not all about that. Solitude in itself is not what will help you out of your frenzy. But what happens when you're still before God? The next thing you know, you're talking to God and you're praying. Because when you're still before God, the discipline of solitude um, joins hands with the discipline of prayer. And Isaiah tells us when we focus on him on prayer, in 26.3, he says, You keep him in perfect peace. Perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's a stability that comes. So when you fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, something happens in your heart. However, if you rush into every day without any time for God, now God won't abandon you, but you will not be aware of his presence throughout your day, his counsel or his comfort, and you'll forget his promises, and that, friends, is a problem. Oswald Chambers put all this in perspective. I read this again this week when he said this. Remember, no one has time to pray. Whoa. We have to take time from other things that are valuable in order to understand how necessary prayer is. He goes on to say, the things that act like thorns and stings in our personal life will go away instantly when we pray and we don't feel the smart anymore because we have God's point of view about them. So prayer means getting into union with God's view of other people. If we don't, we can get bitter and disappointed. Now I've noticed that starting my day with God in prayer and solitude along with his word and my journal has a wonderful way of bringing into focus his, the joy of his presence in my life and clarifying my priorities to maximize my day. Here's another good quote that came across this week from one of Brunsida. If you're too busy to pray, then you're busier than God wants you to be. I thought that was pretty convicting for me. Susanna Wesley, who takes the cake. How many children did she have? 17. Close. So you've got a few more to go yet, Peter. <laughs> 17 kids in a very small little batch. The only way she could get some peace, she used to get a penny. You know what a penny is? Like a, 
What do you call Well, I have things that you put in the front. She used to whip it over her head, and people knew in the middle of the kitchen, do not talk to mother when she's got that thing over her head. There's nowhere else to go. But I love the woman's desire. She said, oh, I haven't got a place to go. Perhaps John Wesley saw that dedication and it affected the cause of his life. My spot um, is, is changed over time. When I had kids buzzing around the house, I used to go into my little library. It's like a little cupboard. I used to sit in there and shut the door. I got a piece. And I could think without being disrupted with the tornado going on outside my house. Now I use my office. Doesn't matter. You need to find some time and some place to escape the frenzy of this world, to put God first, not our phones, God, so that you can be still. Why do you think most people get up early in the morning to do this? The answer, I think, is it's the only time they have control over. The only time when people aren't asking things of them. So the discipline for distraction of the frenzy is solitude and prayer. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, not snoozing off. So one thing that helps me is I pray aloud. B. The discipline for familiarity. Oh boy. No surprises here. But listen carefully. There is no spiritual growth without a healthy dose of the application of God's word. Some of you have been concerned you've been stuck. This is why. There is no spiritual growth without a healthy dose of the application, application of God's word, the Bible, in our lives. And we can't apply it unless we really know it. Actually, you only really know what you do. You say, I know that. Are you doing it? If you don't, you don't know it. We have to allow the Bible's truth to wash over our minds and thoughts and fill the emptiness and the insecurities in our hearts. Now, Paul told the Romans that the only way they could ever recover from the pull, the torrent, you'll see this in your kids, and it's happening to you. Just because you're an adult does not make you excluded from this. The only way you can do that was through the renewing of your mind. He says here in Romans 12, 2 on the screen, do not be conformed to this world, and it's Paul, but be transformed, change, metamorpho, like the butterfly from the caterpillar into the butterfly, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So our minds must first become informed and then conformed to God's word to be transformed. So they need to be informed, right? To be and then we need to be conformed to be transformed. You don't get rid of worldly or negative thinking or sinful thoughts by making your mind up to get rid of them. Because guess what will happen? You'll shove them out that side and they'll pop back in the other door. They'll do a roundhouse and they'll be back in there. The way you do that is by replacing the lies that the world tells you that you have to have all this stuff. Or you have to be like this or be somebody different than God made you. And you, you replace those lies with the truth of God's word. I made you by design. You're not an accident. You listen to the world. They'll, they'll have you dancing to every whim of fashion. And, 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 and it's a mirage. You'll never get there. Because the standards always change is what's good. God didn't. God standard. He said, I made you to love you. 
and I made you the way you are. So if you're looking for the truth, because we live in a world where it's very hard to come by good information, right? What's the truth? What's the facts? If you're looking for the truth, there's only one place it can send you, and that's the Word of God. And Paul said to you, renew your mind, and you renew your mind by the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That's John 17, 17. Now, one other way which I would encourage you, some of you who have been on the road a while, they're actually doing this in the States. They haven't seen it here yet. But you don't have to get the special book. In the States, they have a special, you can go to the uh, bookshop and buy a special book. I just use my journal, my, you know, 70 cent one I bought from somewhere. And what some are doing is actually specific verses and even chapters people are hand copying. You'll see it here. There you go. They're hand copying chapters, not just verses, chapters, and even some of the entire books. When you slow down long enough, and you'll experience a more reflective engagement with the Word of God because it's way too easy to read quickly through the Bible and then forget what we read in a few minutes. Writing things that helps embed in the if, if you're going to write something, why not write the Word of God, especially the passages that God's speaking to you? It'll help better than it helps embed it in the memory. Now, there's an interesting passage which is related to this in the Scriptures. I haven't got time to touch on it much, but I'm going to point it out to you where the Bible commands the kings of Israel to personally make their own hand copy of the Bible. Yeah? Now, clearly, the king was well endowed with resources. He could have any, any number of Bibles he wanted, but he was told he had to do it himself. The law says, here it is. When he takes the throne of his kingdom... He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the priests who are Levites. It is to be we with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. So he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all his words of the law and the decrees, and not to consider himself better than his brothers and turn away from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. That's Deuteronomy 17, 18, for those of you listening on the internet and can't see this. There are many ways to get the Word of God into your mind, but if you want to overcome familiarity, you've got to be in His Word, and you've got to look for His mercies and truths which are new every morning. Otherwise, our assumption of familiarity prevents us from observing as we should. Look closely at what the Bible says we should do with God's Word. Last major scripture, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because, here it is, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So here's what we're challenged to do with the Bible. Firstly, we are challenged to accept it. Accept the word of God. You receive the word which you heard from us. Now, how many of you know the hearing of the word of the God is becoming more and more rare in today's society? Yeah? Rare, 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 rare. The word of God should be central in our church gatherings. It always will be here. Not incidental. T 
teaching them to obey what I've commanded you. Not politics in church, not comedy in church, not pontification, not entertainment. The word of God needs to be central. Now, Amos, the prophet, said this in Amos 8, 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor thirst of water, but for the hearing of the words of the Lord. We need to accept the word of God. Number two, we need to anticipate the word of God. You welcomed it. There's an attitude here. You welcomed it. Glad. Really nice to see you. Come on in. There's an openness and an attitude there. This is the idea of getting excited about God's word. You didn't just listen to it. You were keen, dead keen, to hear it. You want more and more of God in your life and applied so it transforms your life. Now, these two first verbs are quite different. The first one here means to hear with your ears. And the second one means to hear with your heart. When you came to the word of God and with the anticipation that God is going to say something to you from his word, then you'd be surprised how clear it is. Do you come to the scriptures with that attitude? God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to change in me? Do you come to church like this? Do you approach that in your own quiet time? Now, this will help combat the malaise of familiarity. Acts 17.11 on your outline. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They also received the world with all eagerness. See the attitude? Oh, yes, please. Eagerness. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So you accept the word, you anticipate the word, and you appreciate the word. Yeah. You welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as the truth of the word of God. So Paul was rejoicing here. He was happy that these guys, these Thessalonians, or these Thessalonian believers didn't read it like it's just a normal book written by men. They read it as an authoritative, inerrant book coming from God for life and faith. Now notice, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So friends, right there in that scripture, shows the purpose of the Bible is more than just showing us what's wrong in our lives or how we should live. God gave us his word to radically transform our attitudes. Now, this is how it kind of worked for me. And you'll see this in your own kids again. When I was a young Christian, I'd read the word of God and it would say, you know, let me be straight. Don't envy violent men. I used to love to fight. If any men... Uh, well, let me just get it. Okay. I'd probably join up for that stuff. I love it. But I said, don't. And it was all, uh, my friend Grant was always pulling me out of fights, hauling me back. My wife was hauling me out of fights. But what happened was, I went from don't do that, shouldn't do that, don't even think about that, to now, I, as I moved along my journey, I don't want to. There's a change inside. It's not that I don't have to. It's like, don't, don't lie. Anybody ever had a problem lying? Hard thing to control this thing, a tongue. There's, you just lie. And then all of a sudden, I don't want to lie. Don't steal. I don't want to steal. Not because somebody tells me or get caught. No. 
It's gone deeper. It's, there's a change on the inside. It's not externally imposed. That's how God's spirit works. People say, well, I know the Bible is inspired. That just means that the guys who wrote it had inspiration. No, completely wrong. The word inspired means God breathed, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally motivated and superintended the people in the entire process of writing the scriptural books. Second Peter underlines that. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Here's how the syllogism goes, very simply. Nearly there. Number one, God does not err. Number two, the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, number three, the logical conclusion is, therefore, the Bible does not err. So we teach and preach that in this church, that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. So you anticipate the word of God, you accept the word of God, you appreciate it, and then in the same verse, you, this is important, you apply the word of God, most important. It goes on in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, which also works effectively in you who believe. So when Paul says that God effectively works in the hearts of those who believe, he's saying anyone at any time, anywhere, believes and acts on the message of the Bible, something will happen in your life. These Thessalonians are experiencing God's active work in their lives as his word transformed their attitudes and guided them and cleansed them to form Christ-likeness in them. Now, likewise, as you eagerly accept the word of God in your life, the Holy Spirit will use it to change you. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So God's spirit uses God's word, the sword of the spirit, to transform us to make us holy. Holy. That means separate from this world. Now people will often ask me, Pastor Ian, what is the best translation of the Bible? Well, my answer to that is the one that you translate into your life. If you're not translating God's word into your life, you're not studying the Bible the way God intended it. God gave us his word to transform us, never simply to inform us. It should give us a bigger heart, not a bigger head. Simply reading it or even studying God's word does not change us if we do not do what it says. We learn God's word not just to know it, but to do it. Last verse, do not merely listen to the word. And so, deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So James there, the brother of Jesus, is warning us about passive listening or passive reading of God's word. He says instead, read it and apply it with attentiveness and action and then you'll see transformation and holiness. We need the effectiveness of Bible study time to work in our lives and change our behavior and attitudes. Let's pray. Lord, your word 
is especially poignant today. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Lord, thank you for the instruction and the exhortation of your word. Thank you for the blessing and the clarity of your spirit living within us and speaking to our hearts so that we can be changed to be more like your son and his love for your word. We need you, Lord, to work in our hearts and to energize us through your spirit and your word. In you, we can look forward to a brand new year with great anticipation to the growth that you want to happen in our own lives. Lord, we want to cooperate with your spirit and grow. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Speak, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your powerful name and help us to apply your word today. Amen.